Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is the best place to advertise if you're trying to reach the cultural web, if you're trying to reach nerds of any kind, book nerds, art nerds, music nerds, culture vultures, those kinds of people. Go to litbreaker.com and advertise. It's that simple. It's a very, very effective way to get the message out about whatever it is that you have on your hands. Is it a book? Is it a piece of art? Is it an album? Whatever you got. Go to litbreaker.com and they can help you out. Litbreaker, it's an advertising network for nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is delivered to your device free of charge. This is something you can put in your back pocket. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles in a chair. Fourth of July weekend. I hope you enjoyed your holiday. My guest today is Julia Fierro. Her debut novel, Cutting Teeth, is now available from St. Martin's Press. Uh, I should add that Julia is also the founder of the Sackett Street Writing, uh, Writers Workshop over there across the country in Brooklyn, New York. She's a fixture uh, in the New York City literary community, and it's a great pleasure to have her here. She and I are going to be talking in just a moment. First, though, uh, I do have some mail. I want to read it to you. This one comes from a listener named Jim who writes, Dear Brad, I just went premium. It feels great. I devour the TNB book club selection every month and always listen to the podcast. I was listening to the most recent episode and heard you talk about the premium access. I said to myself, self, you spend more than this on lunch daily. So I signed up for premium access. It feels great. I feel like a better person. I feel like I'm supporting the arts. Tell everyone. It'll make their day. Keep it up. Cheers, Jim. So I want to let you guys know that I did not write that myself. <laughs> That's an actual letter from a very kind listener. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. And I hope I can uh, convince everybody else to follow Jim's lead. Sign up for premium. It's two bucks a month. That's all. And uh, you can stream every single episode, all, all 300 of them, almost. Uh, or, you know, if that's too much, 
there are actually other pricing plans. I offer three different pricing plans for premium. You can do two bucks a month, uh, or you can do five bucks for six months of access or nine bucks for a full year of access, which when you, you, you know, you divide it out, it's like 75 cents a month. So my strategy when it comes to the app and premium access is to make it a no brainer and 75 cents a month feels to me like as close as I can come to making this a no brainer. So if you would like to sign up for premium and support the show, all you got to do uh, is, to, is just download the official other people app. That's the first thing. Download the app. The app is free. It's available wherever apps are available. And then once you have the app on your device, you can sign up for premium right there inside the app. So it, it should be pretty, you know, pretty easy, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, also, uh, and I don't mean to give you the full sales pitch, but I do want to make sure that people who are new to the show or new to this particular, uh, thing understand that if you want to sign up for what Jim referred to as the TNB book club, that's the T, uh, that's the nervous breakdown book club, the official book club of the nervous which is my online literary site. That is just nine 99 a month. And you can get a brand new book, uh, delivered to your door every month. I picked the titles in conjunction with uh, Johnny Evison, and you know the calculation here uh, once again is uh, is that it's a great deal. It, you know, nine ninety nine a month. That's less than the cost of a book uh, per month, and you get a new title every thirty days. So, uh, you know, I feel good about these offers. These are good, solid offers. <laughs> that's what I'm all about. I just want to give you guys good, solid offers. Uh, also, uh, and, and finally, I should mention that the TNB book club authors are then interviewed on this program. So it makes for a nice experience. You can read and then listen or listen and then read. So thanks once again to Jim and uh, to all of you listeners out there who support this show. It helps. And I really appreciate it. Uh, so I have one more quick email from a listener. A lot of you guys have been writing to me with suggestions for guests. That happens a lot. I like that. Uh, you've been tweeting at me and so on and so forth. Many of you have been suggesting, um, you know, uh, people that I should have on for my 300th show, which is coming up. I tweeted about it a while back and got flooded with a lot of good responses. So, uh, this particular, uh, letter comes from a guy named Jeff in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he says, dear Brad, I'm trying to think of the perfect 300th podcast guest guest and came across Wallace Sean. I love that his father was the editor of the New Yorker between 1952 and 1987. I assume you know of him. He seems like a nice mix of popular and critical and crazy interesting. Uh, I've been meaning to write you also the Mother's Day-ish super episode with the several female writers uh, on giving birth. And, and what he's referring to here are the contributors to the Labor Day anthology. This is episode 269. Uh, and he goes on to say, Super, super good episode. It belongs in a human time capsule and or sent into space so that aliens can learn of us beyond our nukes and oil. I am 38 years old like you and single, not like you, and somewhat of a failure to launch according to my mother. Uh, I have trouble settling down, but that episode was such a toast to being a true human and to letting something larger than oneself be a determinant in one's reality. You crushed it. All the best. Keep on, Jeff. So uh, thank you, Jeff. That's awfully nice of you. I appreciate it. And uh, I too liked that episode. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I did it. Uh, it was a big job interviewing all those uh, nice ladies about their uh, childbirth stories. It was emotional at times. It was a little scary, uh, but it was a very human uh, process. And you know what? Childbirth, obviously a very human process. <laughs> also emotional, you know, reproduction is emotional. So 
if you're out there and you have kids or uh, you, you're contemplating potentially having kids one day down the road, uh, or if you hate children and you would like to channel your rage at something inanimate, perhaps you might listen to uh, episode 269 of this program and listen to my conversations with, uh, I believe it was 10 different women, all contributors to the Labor Day anthology. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once more, is Julia Fierro. Her debut novel, Cutting Teeth, is available now from St. Martin's Press. Very excited to have her here and to get a, and to have had a chance to, to speak with her. She's one of those folks uh, that I've long admired in the literary community from afar uh, for all that she does for other writers uh, via Sackett Street. And uh, it's just really nice to see her having some publication success of her own. So uh, without any further ado, here she is, folks. This is Julia Fierro, and her debut novel, once again, is called Cutting Teeth. I am in my apartment in Brooklyn, and I um, it's pretty messy, I have to say, today, because I know that the babysitter is not bringing the kids home, but that I have to pick them up from school. So I'm sitting at my kitchen table. There's a lot of um, Lego pieces everywhere, as well as all my work stuff, because our kitchen table is also where I run the, the Sacka Street Writers Workshop, pretty much. Um, even though I think a lot of people think we have an office, and now I'm bursting their bubble there. Yeah. But, um, so, and, um, but yeah, I live in Brooklyn, um, kind of in an out of the way <laughs> neighborhood called, um, well, it's, it's technically Carroll Gardens, but they call it all different kinds of things, but it's very close to Red Hook. And it's, <clears throat> sorry, it's very close to the water. So we can see lower Manhattan. Well, we can't actually see lower Manhattan, but I guess if you had like a high rise, you would be able to. Um, <clears throat> but I like it because the, the, there's no, the, the subway stop is pretty far away, so it's not as congested as a lot of other Brooklyn neighborhoods. Um, and yeah, but if you got to get yeah, somewhere, if, if you got to get somewhere, you got to hoof it in the bad weather. Well, I really try to make it possible that I don't have to go um, anywhere outside my ten block radius, um, <laughs> which is hard when you're doing like book tours and events. And so, pretty much, I move from my apartment. To the writer's space, which is about 10 blocks away, and that's where, you know, it's this quiet 
like group space where everybody has a cubicle and that's where I do all the emailing for Sackett Street or Sackett Street Writers Workshop and that's where I wrote my novel um and it's just an incredible thing for a parent to two small children you know to have and then wait 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 I want to stop I you there run... what, what is that what is what is this place that you go to go right in this cubicle <laughs> well it's an amazing place it's called the Brooklyn Writers Space and um it's run by Scott Atkins, and there's several locations in Brooklyn. There's one in Park Slope. There's one in Gowanus. There's um, the newer one, which is near me, Carroll Gardens. Um, and it's about, it's only like maybe four blocks from my children's school, which is great because sometimes I have to run over there and do mom things during the day, you know, like volunteer for lunch or, and so, um, so it's a mem- it's um you join this space and there's about oh no maybe like 40 cubicles and it's incredibly quiet like if you cough people will be like shh and you know like no phones yet still I'm so uptight I have to wear earplugs when I'm there because of the typing sounds um it's almost like it's, it's almost little- like it's like chewing, <laughs> it's like chewing sounds or something in a quiet space like the- <laughs> It's so much worse. And there are some people, you know, people type. I mean, there's like an infinite variety of typing, sensory strengths. And, you know, like some people just really like let their keyboard have it, you know, and they're really loud. But um, it's a really great space. And if I hadn't had a space like that, I definitely would never have finished another book. I mean, it was just... Is there Plus, is there Wi-Fi there? There is Wi-Fi there, which I need, you know, because I'm constantly I'm answering emails for most of the day for the Sack of Street Writers Workshop for applications and but um to fill classes. But I think there's a lot of writers there that don't use the internet, and there's a lot of great writers there, and a lot of them are friends. Many of them are Sackett Street writers, which is great. So so there's a sense of community. And it's twenty four seven. You can you can get a twenty four you can get a twenty four seven membership. So when I was writing Cutting Teeth, I would go there in the afternoon. Um, I would have the babysitter pick the kids up from from school, or I would stay with the kids in the morning, and then my husband would put them to bed so I could stay out till like eleven or twelve writing because I had to take advantage of that time when everyone else was sleeping. Um, so it would just kind of be me in this massive um, storefront that was filled with cubicles. Wow! And so, and do you get, um, do you get like do you rent a cubicle of your own, or does it change from visit to visit? Like, a- no, you have to carry your laptop with you, which is kind of you know. And then when you're a novelist, you feel like you're being like it's almost like self-flagellation when you're carrying your manuscript back and forth every day. You know, you're like you're like my editor's right. I should get it under a hundred thousand words. <laughs> Well, but but it's in, but it's in your computer, right? You're not carrying like a physical printout. Well, there is a there is a, a period where you have to carry the um, the proofs and the the copy editor's notes, and oh, right. yeah. you're, you're actually carrying like this massive thing, you know. But uh, come on, that's sort of a badge of honor. That's sort of like look at me. It is look totally, <laughs> totally. Look at me with my hundred thousand words. <laughs> And you're like, and, and like, at, you know, you're walking home at midnight and you're like, please don't let anyone love me and accidentally take my manuscript because A, they'll be really disappointed. 
and B, like, at the copy, you know, like, I don't think, um, I'm pretty sure my publisher didn't make, I don't think they made a copy of it. Maybe they did. Yeah, they got it. Because I was thinking about, I think about this sometimes, like, uh, back in the day when... People, yeah. people really did like write by hand and then someone would type it and then you'd have, yeah. like, you'd have like one copy of the thing. Like or, Tolstoy. Yeah. Or you'd have, you know, you'd have the handwritten version and then you'd have the typeset version and then you're like, you know, Oh, terrifying. Yeah. If you yeah. imagine like really, and I guess this can happen with, uh, hard drives crashing and stuff, but it, I feel like with backup hard drives, there's a lot of ways to protect against that. You sort of have to be asking. Yeah. But that would, yes, be, that would you really be, do. That would be traumatic. And why would anyone feel my manuscript is another question, but yeah. Um, so, so was I reading, I want to say I was reading cause you know, your book is just rolling out and I want to say, uh, I read something with you where you were, uh, having to fly for book tour and you are not a, a comfortable flyer. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. This goes back to my whole, not leaving my, uh, yeah. you know, 10 block radius, you know, it's kind of like in my blood because my father, it's the same way. Like I used to think like, Oh, it's because he grew up in Italy where there was like, you know, during world war two, where there was no electricity. And, and then I'm like, no, no, it's like the way it's like, it's like biochemistry. I think we're just such anxious people. Such, that, what, such um, what people? Anxious. Oh, we're just so, yeah. Like, so I had to, um, recently, like I've only been doing these, like, sort of day-long trips um, to do readings, and I decided to invite my dad with me to go to Boston to read at Newtonville Books, which was such an amazing reading. I had so much fun. I read with Brett Anthony Johnston, and it was just such a great crowd, and, and, and the owners there, it's just such a wonderful place. And, you know, my dad is, um, he's almost 80. He's, he doesn't speak English very clearly, you know, of course I can understand him and, um, he's in great shape. Yeah. Sorry. Go I ahead. was going to say, do you speak Italian? Well, you know, I did this thing where I can speak it in emergency situations. Like when I'm surrounded by relatives who don't speak English, but you know, and we took lessons when we were kids and, but then I would do that really obnoxious, like, sort of like teen thing where I, he would speak to me in Italian and I would speak to him in English. Right. So I understand it, you know, and we can almost, but you know, now at this point in his life, he, he doesn't speak perfect Italian or perfect English. Interesting. So, and also he's technically like deaf because of <laughs> age and <laughs> I know it's terrible. And he would never get a hearing aid because as he often tells people, he is um he was born beautiful and he's young at heart and you know so anyways. He um had a lot of ear infections as a child in southern Italy and they didn't have medicine. So um he accumulated all this scar tissue in his ears and so I, I we think that's why it was so difficult for him to learn. English, even though it's, he's been here for 36 years, 35 years. Um, but also he's kind of like a loner. So when I asked him to come on this book, <laughs> this book trip with me to Boston, I was shocked when he said yes. And 
of course, you wouldn't take the train out to um, Brooklyn because that would be terrifying for him. And so I had to go out to Long Island and pick him up. And we had to get to the ferry and take the ferry over. And we, I think we got lost six times on the way to the ferry, which is, <laughs> if you ask anyone, is like almost impossible. But um, we're like, we were like two little scared rabbits driving a car. But we did it. And... Um, and we had fun, and he enjoyed the French fries on the ferry very much. He was very excited about that. Wait, so you can take a ferry? And, to, you uh, can take a ferry to Boston. You can take a ferry from Long Island to Connecticut, and then the drive is only like an hour and a half. Oh, oh, so you pull your car onto the ferry? Okay. Yeah. I was going to say so, I, I thought, um, that seems like a long journey by sea, or like a longer journey than to just. Get... I mean, it is kind of ridiculous, you know, because but he won't. He wouldn't take the train because he's scared he'll get lost, and then he won't be able to hear, or the combination is not no one understanding him. So, you know, but um, it was kind of fun, even though I, I felt absolutely exhausted. But my big book tour trip is coming up, and guess where I'm going? Where? L.A. You're coming to Los Angeles. I am. Have you, have you, ever, have you ever been? Um, I went once in college, but but I we just flew into L.A. and then we got in this like van and took like this cross country trip. Um, with one of the guys that was on the cross country trip had a safe full of mushrooms with him. Good. So that was not a good experience because I was worried about that the whole time. I was always the person. Uh, yeah, I was always the person who was way like I was always very concerned about the legal ramifications. If I was in a van with somebody, yeah. I was like, guys, what are we doing here? Like when we we'd like camp out overnight <laughs> in like a town, just like sleeping in a. Like, I remember we did this in a camper once when I was in college, and I was like burying things. People are like, you're paranoid. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not paranoid. If the cops come, like, we're in the middle of town, like, sleeping on top of this camp. Like, literally under the stars, like, bums, like, sleeping on top of this RV. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to jail. You know, this is this is ridiculous. I'm trying to use my head. Yeah, I mean, like, for the, you know, for the, like, I've been fearful and, like, technically obsessive compulsive since I was a child. And, like, to think of the things that I did because of the crowd of people I hung out with was, I can't believe, like... You know, I mean, I was just terrified all the time. But then you have to pretend like you're not. Yeah. No. And so you seem, you know, it, no, I'm it, drives, glad I it, it drives me crazy. It drove me crazy in college because I could never get a clear answer. It was like I remember because I went to I went to Colorado, so it was like you know the hippie thing, and people were like, you know, you're, yeah. not, you're not being mellow. And I'm like, what the fuck does that oh, mean? Oh yeah. Does mellow mellow means just like turning a switch off in your brain, so like you're no longer a thinking person. You're just like this like. Empty vessel of you know, not pretty kidding. much. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because when I listen to your podcast, I always think like, I mean, maybe this is because I like you so much, but I'm like, he's such a New Yorker. He's got like that edgy, like like a little bit of cynicism, like a little bit of the like, you know, like overthinking things, which of course to me means just you're brilliant. And um, you know, it's a very like I imagine that it would be hard growing up somewhere where, where like the norm is like, like an expectation to be more mellow. I mean, cause a lot, you know, when I went to, I visit every time I go to the West coast, this is so generalizing. It's terrible, but I feel like a little freakish. Yeah. Um, like people are like, 
don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's like my whole purpose in life. <laughs> Somebody needs to hold the line. That's my theory. And you know what? Yeah. Like, like it, there are different types of like, you know, if you think of like the humanity and just life in general as some sort of a collective organism with various different mutations and, you know, you need different kinds of people in the organism to sustain it. You need the mellow people. You need the people who are easy. Yeah, easy I guess left. you're right. But somebody's got somebody's <laughs> somebody's got to be there thinking through things. There's got to be that person, you know. Yeah, we don't have a lot of mellow people in New York. I don't think. Well, you know, and it's also there's, there's something about you know. I, I I think that there's the there's a mellow thing in Los Angeles for sure, and there's like the new age thing, and there's all these different you know uh, religious experiments happening in Los Angeles, which I think is sort of charming in its own weird way, but. Wow. Um, you know, in, in any big city where there's lots of people living on top of yeah, one another, diversity. and there's yeah. lots of different kinds of people living in close proximity, I think that does something to, and, and you know, there's just a lot of bad shit going on on any given night around here that you just have to sort of accept as being part of your environment that you don't necessarily see with any regularity if you're living in a smaller town or some bucolic suburb. Yeah. So I think yeah. that, that gives you a sort of edge. I mean, you're you're like like real life, yeah. real life, and the difficulties of human beings living on the same planet with one another seem to be delivered in, in higher relief more often when you're living in an urban environment, and maybe that's what delivers an edge. And then I think New York, yeah. New York, when you couple it with like the harsher climate, you know, the more difficult weather, plus like I think people, yeah. the 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 concentration of people and the street level interaction is way more intense. Because, yeah. you know, you're on the train or you're on the city streets. And in Los Angeles, everybody's in their cars or, you know, like in their dojo meditating or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I like so much. And also, which what I don't like about New York, it's kind of like, I mean, I, you know, I've I, because I was so obsessive compulsive as a child, I, um, it was very hard for me to be alone. Because when I was alone and not busy, my thought, you know, my obsessive thoughts just ran wild. And we live, I grew up in this very woodsy area on the North Shore of Long Island where we were like in the woods. Like our house, you couldn't see other houses. It was just a beautiful place. But, um, you know, the, what I love about the city, and especially being a parent to young children, you can just walk outside and have a social interaction. Right. You know, um, and you know, then you can walk back in your house and <laughs> avoid people as well. And also there's something about there is a certain kind of anonymity. That's a hard word to say um, when you're in a crowded city. But, but there's also things like, like I'm, because I don't have a nine to five job, you know, when I go on the subway and everybody's ignoring each other, it, it feels like, it almost feels like I'm in, a, I'm in group therapy, but I'm the only one participating you know, because I'm obsessive, so I'm, like, wondering what everybody's thinking and feeling, and yet we're all pretending to ignore each other. And so, um, you know, I kind of love bringing my kids on the subway. We don't do it. They don't go on the subway that much. So when they do go on the subway, they're, like, um, they're they're very friendly, especially my oldest son. Um, and so we went on the subway the other day. I took them to the, to the Lego store. Um, cause that's the only toy that both of them play with my seven year old son and my four year old daughter. They love Legos. And, um, they were just talking to everybody on the subway and it was kind of amazing. Um, 
you know, at first I was like, you know, people like to be left alone. And I was trying to explain that to them. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, you know what? That's ridiculous that I'm trying to explain you know, this to them. Um, but I also do need a lot of time alone. And so that's why the writer space is so perfect because I can just go into my little cubicle. Yeah. Hi there. Right. If I want to interact, I can do it through social media, which is on my own terms. I can just log off if I need to be alone. Right. Um, so, well, so, and what I want to, I want to, I want to ask you more about, uh, OCD. Like, I mean, is this a real, like, this is a diagnosed thing by a doctor? Is this you just sort of armchairing your kind of like, no, I mean, it is diagnosed, you know, it's not, I mean, there's different, there's various, you know, I guess levels of OCD and obviously I'm functioning, but, um, it was very difficult as a child, you know, because my family, you know, I've already told you about my dad. Um, obviously, he's obsessive compulsive too. And, it, you know, like therapy, medication wasn't anything that anyone was ever going to, you know, talk about or suggest in my family. They're very old school. They're, they're very smart. But, you know, they're, there's almost a generation between my father and I. Um, and so it wasn't until... So childhood, and especially young adulthood, was really exhausting for me um, because I was just obsessing. About what? And I had, well, let's see. Um, This is kind of a sad little story. But when I was maybe, I think I was seven, no, maybe eight years old, but my parents had the TV on all the time because... You know, my, they love my mom loves to watch TV, and I think they thought it was educational. But they weren't like really, they weren't watching us while we were watching TV. But you know, I think my mom was watching like one of those cop shows, um, and it was a mini series, and it was about this girl, this teenage girl who was kidnapped, and then like something terrible happened to her, like she was kidnapped and raped, which at that time, you know, this was like mid eighties, late eighties. Like they weren't showing it in like a dramatized way like they would today, you know, but I, but I understood enough about what was going on in this mini series. It was like on ABC or NBC. It wasn't extremely violent. And I just, I absorbed it and I started to obsess about being, kidnapped okay i want to stop. and i don't even think i want to stop you because yeah. i had a i mean i don't think i'm obsessive um but i i definitely had like a very powerful childhood experience with a movie called without a trace did you ever see that movie um it was with judd hirsch the dude from taxi and he played like a, right. a an investigator and there was a boy who was abducted and i feel like you know i don't know if we're the Wait, same i think i did see this man it was like was I it just, like on hbo maybe yes or yes something? hbo in the 80s and it was like all about this boy who disappears and he winds up you know somebody kidnaps him and he's like you know he's like basically kept as an indentured servant for like some elderly person who's you know, incapacitated. Oh my God. I think I totally saw this. I think I, I really do think I saw it, but there I was, see it in my mind. are we, are we roughly the same age? I'm, I'm 38. 30. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm 37. Okay. So, uh, there was like, if you grew up in the eighties, there was like a big period where in the media, there were like child abduction and Adam Walsh. And, yes. 
that yes. was like, a, and don't go, don't talk to strangers. And like, that was a That's big. That's right. And the milk cartons and the white vans. Yes. And... Yes. And so like that, I mean, that gets inside a kid's head for sure. You know? And my parents are extremely fearful people. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, we're, they, we're all obsessive warriors. Like, and my mother, even though I think she was doing what she thought was best, like not realizing how obsessive I was. I mean, they still really are like, we had no idea, you know, and, you know, and I didn't know to tell them really. And so, um, you know, and, 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 and HBO at that time, like we got cable, it was like the new thing. We got all the channels, you know, my parents weren't neglectful, but they weren't like watching us every second. And so, I just worried about this. I mean, for months, it was like consuming me day and night that something terrible was. So it's really my, my OCD is very much the perseverating. And then my compulsion, I realized, is, is to tell people. And if I tell someone what I'm obsessing about, that might help a little. What does perseverating so, mean? What does perseverating mean? It's like obsessing. It's like focusing on one detail that you just run through your mind over and over and over again. Okay. And so it's, I guess it's kind of one of those psychobabble terms that I just picked up. It's kind of fun to say. Yeah. No, it sounds, so, it sounds very intelligent. I'm going to start using it. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh. Thank you. My vocabulary is very small. Um, and so we were having, so this was also around the time when we started to have sex, sex, sexual education in school. Okay. I must have been older. I mean, I think I was in fifth grade, actually. Oh, my God. Listen to me just making up stories. Fourth or fifth grade was the first time we had, like, you know, your body. And they separated the boys and the girls. And this woman came to talk to us in elementary school and public school. And she was so nice. And at the end of the meeting, I waited for everyone to leave. And I asked my teacher if I could ask this woman a question. And I said... I saw this TV show and I'm worried that, that what happened to that girl is going to happen to me. And she was like, it's not going to happen to you. And that was it. Like five months of worrying about this just like vanished because I just needed to like talk to someone about it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I did some, I did a lot of like light, switch flipping and like different counting. Like if I flip every light switch five times when I go in and out of a room then nothing bad will happen to me or my family. And, and also we, you know, my, my family's very Catholic. So like a lot of like, kind of like repetition of prayers and, but the light flip, the light switch flipping drove my parents crazy because they're so, um, frugal and like they were like the electricity <laughs> so wait how many what, is this, what like, does this look like what does this look like you're a kid and like you leave a room and you flip the light switch like 70 times <laughs> yes well everyone's in it five times always five always five why five well and actually there's a line in my novel about this because one of the characters nicole is obsessive compulsive and i i really had to write about it um, in connection with parenting, because I had a really bad episode with my second pregnancy. And so she also flips the light. She talks, thinks about when she was a child and she flipped the light switches five times because five looks like one person in the middle surrounded by two on each side. And that's like safe. Oh, 
Oh, that's kind of sweet. And, uh, so wait, when you say, because uh, <laughs> you, you know, you're OCD to begin with uh, and, you know, obsessive compulsive to begin with, and then you have this pregnancy thing. There's a cover story in the New York Times today about postpartum OCD and postpartum, all this different postpartum stuff. Is, is that what you're talking about, where you had the baby? And the... Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a... No, I got to check that out. Yeah. Um, so. I actually, I wrote an essay about it for HuffPost parents like a month ago when my book came out. It was incredible, the response, like women that I didn't even know who I'm friends with that had never admitted to having any experience. But so I am, um, so I went to college. That was a very difficult time. Where'd you, with, go, where'd you go to school? You know, I went to American because my parents, um, my father, especially being an immigrant, really wanted me to go to a private university. So I went to American University in D.C., and it was just, it's very hard to live with strangers and be in a social atmosphere 24-7 when you're obsessive-compulsive, or when you're not. <laughs> and um, Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not obsessive-compulsive, and that sounds hellish. And it's, just, <laughs> it's just so hard, right? Like living in a dorm. Well, but you know what? And, um, I, I look back, though, and like there's things that I could do when I was 18, because the truth is that I had fun in my dorm. And, uh, I lived, I had a good roommate, so I got lucky, but then my buddy dropped out, my buddy dropped out of college, a kid that I went to high school with, and he's like a lifelong best friend of mine. And he dropped out of college in Michigan and like was kind of hippied out and he got on an Amtrak train and, and just came out to Colorado with like a duffel bag. And he wound up (laughs) living in our dorm room my entire spring semester. And we would just like steal him. (laughs) Like on a, like we, we didn't have any room. So like we put our little couch like on top of our dressers and. We called it the elevated couch, and he just slept up there. God, it's amazing that they let you keep him there. Well, they didn't know. We had like we had one of these rooms that was like in the basement that opened out into the outside, so he would come in and out the window, and we would just steal him food. Oh, yeah. I was in the basement too in my dorm. Yeah. It smelled weird down there. It was bad. We were right by the um, dumpster, but I, I didn't care. Is the point? And I'm like, it was a small room, and there were like three of us in there, and it was just like, how did I do that? You know? You know, I wonder also if like being a woman. You know, it was really hard. It was the first time in my life that I was like, God, being a woman. I mean, obviously, like, with all the clickiness of 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 girls in high school and, like, you know, but in college, it was really like, I don't know. It was really like a lot of sexual harassment all the time, even though you just kind of accept it. Like what? Like people were catcalling you or, or like, was it worse? You know, I think because, you know, like now, like I really look like, you know, I think I look like one of my aunts. Like I look like, like I, clearly I come from like peasant stock and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I look like a mom. But at that time in college, like I was a dancer. I was really thin. You know, I was like, I was cute, like really cute. And also I was tough. And I think my identity at that time was like, I wore a lot of black and I was like, you know, I was more likely to be like, fuck off to a guy that tried to approach me rather than like, you know, and, you know, and I was a date, you know, I was like, I was minoring in dance and I just, what kind of dance, you you know, I was a ballerina. Um, more modern dance. And I was like reading a lot and I was also like chain smoking. I mean, I smoked like (laughs) two packs of cigarettes a day. I was, I was more, I wasn't like tough, tough, but it was like, there was something about me 
like playing this sort of like a little bit of like the cold bitch role that like made boys think it was okay to like be more like you could take it. Yeah. Like come up to you at a party or like some guy in your dorm room who like made you like, maybe I did have a crush on him and think he was cute, but then just be like, you know, we should, we should fuck. And you're like, hmm. see, I don't mean to laugh because that's not. I mean, that's not appropriate. <laughs> no, no, I but know. I, I, I gotta, mean, it's I a gotta, long time ago. I got to speak up for men. I, I got to speak up for men because you know, so so much of bad behavior in men and sexual harassment and just just shitty behavior is not intended with malice. It's like an outgrowth. Yeah. It's, it's like this attitude that you were putting off with, like the wearing all black and the chain smoking and like maybe this kind of posturing or whatever. <laughs> for guys, it's like. We do not know how to get you into bed, and we're nervous. Yeah. And then maybe you, you throw a few beers into the mix, and then it's just like you blurt it out. It's just, you, you know what I'm saying? I, so what I, do we call that? What do we call that instead? Because it's sexual harassment. You're right. It is. Maybe though. that's too much. It's just no. It, it is. It's just. It's <laughs> like I don't know. I, I just feel like people on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, there there is such a thing as like drawing the line, and there is such a thing as like truly bad behavior that one should never tolerate. Yeah. But, I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding in communication and a lot of it's just an outgrowth of yeah. insecurity and fear and uh, too much beer or uh, vodka or whatever. Yeah. And so if we And I think that that wasn't so much because like usually that was like a guy that I at least had met before, you know, but like <laughs> you know, going to bars in DC and like really much older men just like grabbing you in dark bar. It was just Oh, I just was too uptight to like do college in that way and enjoy it. You know, like there were just so many opportunities. There was just so many times. And, and I, I mean, I, you know, that's, I think what, like, there's just so much that you just have to, you feel like you have to go along with as a, as a woman, as a young woman, especially like before you have any confidence or know who you are or have the, self-esteem to be like get away or like you know like i just didn't have that kind of confidence so what do i tell my daughter you know what do you tell your daughter well she's only four but you know we are already starting to have a very like some complex conversations because she's very um she's four and a half she's really smart in that, like, she, you know, my son is very, like, happy-go-lucky, like, in the moment. Like, I feel like he could be in a frat. Like, he's just like, yeah, woo, you know. And she's um, very, she's very emotionally intelligent, so she know she's performing a lot of the time for adults. So, like, in, I can tell sometimes when an adult gives her a compliment, she almost does, like, the woman version of, like, oh, stop, you know? Like, she, like, and I'm just like, wow. You know, like, she already knows how to do the, like, composed, polite, giggly. But then at home, she's, like, a serious tomboy and, like, kicks her brother's ass and, like, only plays with Legos and won't wear dresses. But she's starting to feel that pressure in preschool in pre-k from the girls in her class right that's like it was her it was her star day you know where they all bring in their favorite things and and i was like so why don't you bring in some of your bad your i didn't say this but your 
I have this Tumblr called Badass Lego Girls, <laughs> which I started because she was taking all the heads off of the girl Legos and putting them on the warrior boy bodies. And she was making these, like, crazy, like, you know, warrior girls. So I started this Tumblr. She has no idea what the Internet is or Tumblr, you know. And I was like, how come you, why don't you bring some of your Lego girls or your Lego boys or whatever, just Legos? She was like, no, the girls won't like that. Oh, man. That's a, I know. That's and a, then that's I'm that's like. A knife, it's a knife to the heart. Just like, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, what do I do here? Do yeah. I force her? Like, do I push her to bring them? You know, I mean, we've already started saying things like I've already started this little secret that I have where, she, where I look at her and whisper like girls are the best because she wanted. She just felt very frustrated with, with a lot of girl stuff very early on. Yeah. Like, she, you know, like, why would she wear a dress when she could skin her knees? Like, she's so active, you know. Um, So that, you know, it's amazing how having a child. You know, I mean, having children at all, like, really changes the way that you think of gender. I mean, you know, it's incredible. It really is. It's Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I don't know what to do. I feel like I, I've been saying this lately uh, in my life and on this show that, like, I'm just trying as hard as I can to just be honest. So, like, I'm projecting now. But yeah. it's like My daughter said, like, I don't want to bring that stuff. Uh, the girls won't like it. I, my yeah. ten, I'd want to be like, there's a part of <laughs> it. I don't know. It sounds awful, but <laughs> screw the girls. I don't care if they don't like it. I know. No, I totally. I mean, and depending on the moment, like I go, you know, I, cause I know what I, it's, it's also, there's like, I know which girl it is. It's like, there's, yeah. you know, there's dust. I mean, it's amazing. The intelligence of girls and like the way that they get each other to do things like where the boys that in, in pre-K are still like, you're cavemen. Yeah, yeah, they're like pre-verbal. That is a weird thing. I didn't because I, you know, you don't, you're not cognizant of child development really, unless you work in it or you have lots of little. Siblings. Yeah. But once you have kids, you're like, you, there's a there's a big difference in development between girls and boys. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I used to think it was like a terrible generalization, and I'm like, no, it's true. Yeah, yeah. And how old is your daughter? She's about to be four, so getting right there. Oh, she's little too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, I wish, I hope that I'll be able to tell her, like, I mean, I think really the, the best, like, the best hope that you can have for them is that they do what they want and they don't do what they don't want to do. But, you know, that, like, I mean, I grew up with OCD, right? Like, my parents were very different from my friend's parents because they were older grew up working class and I, we, they moved us to this very wealthy suburb so we could grow up among the wealthy. And, you know, I was also, I don't know. I just feel like, um, you know, and also growing up with a father who saw like horrific things in his childhood. Who, like, like what, what he was there during the war in world war two. Yeah. So, so my father was seven years old, no, eight, between seven and eight when the, um, America, the, the allies, um, liberated Southern Italy. And he grew up in this tiny town called Tramonti, which, um, means sunset in, in Italian. And the road that led to 
uh, Naples went right by his village. Um, and of course, these are like, you know, people with no electricity, no running water, no medicine. Um, and, you know, his family and their entire village had to um, hide in, in the caves for three weeks while while the bombs rained down on, on the area for, you know, and then the Germans, the leftover Germans had their tanks pretty much like positioned right on this road. And of course my father, he's not a great storyteller and he's also very nostalgic. So when I ask him about it, he's like, it wasn't so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no dad, no. Like what did it smell like? Like what did, you know, and he's just like, Oh, I don't know. We eat potatoes, you know. But I mean, he was also a kid. Was there there any, was there any of it covered up by the fact that he was just seven? I mean, because, you know, seven year old living in a cave, that could be kind of fun. Yes. Well, I think, well, but I think like there was a lot of adult crime. I mean, it must have meant because when I talked to my aunts, they're, you know, my, they're younger than, most of them are younger than him. They, they have all the details, you know, I mean, really like he has all these like stories that almost sound like magical realism. He's like, he's like my mother, she feed all the babies in the cave because all the other mothers, their milk dried up because they were scared. But my mama was not like, you know, it's like mythology. Um, and then, um, you know, like they didn't even have, underwear or shoes so like he got his first pair of shoes when um an american soldier chopped up the heel on a woman's pump and that was his first pair of shoes and um and also like his father i think also was i don't know if he was obsessive compulsive or manic depressive but he did you know there was abuse in his in in their family and um, particularly like my um, grandfather hitting my grandmother. Ugh. So, you know, it was really, and then he was a police officer. The, the only way to get out of the town was to either pretty much become a priest or a police officer. And so when he was 18, he was sent to Rome, like from this tiny town. And um, I think that was really intense. Like his, he has this amazing story about the first time he took an elevator and he just like stood outside the elevator for like an hour watching people go in, you know, up and down because he just could not get on the elevator. What, just too scared? Uh, yeah. Even to cross the road, he said it was like, you know, just crossing the first time he crossed a road, he was just, and I mean, if you met him, you would be like, he's so sophisticated. He's so, you know, I mean, he didn't finish you know, he finished high school here in his early 40, you know, late 30, early 40s. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't, like all my aunts and uncles, they're really incredible people, very intelligent. You know, it's amazing what they've accomplished. Um, but, you know, like he could never have, like, my parents, when my mother's American. Yeah, so and, how, how did they meet? What, like, how, did, how did that? You know, it's such a long story. So... My father came to America in the late 60s, mid-60s, mid-60s. And some of his family were already here um, living in Yonkers, which is near the Bronx, very Italian at that time. 
and he spoke no English. He um, went to a, he and his brother-in-law went to this dance and the, the, um, the New York City Catholic diocese used to have these massive dances in like these halls and there would be like hundreds and hundreds of young people there. And my mother was there, my mother who is Irish Catholic American and her father had just recently like really sort of scored the American dream, like came from nothing and started this like engineering firm that ended up building, helping to build the twin towers. I mean, it was just like incredible, like two American dream stories from different sides. And so she was very virginal, had gone to all Catholic, you know, high school and college. And she met my father on the dance floor. And I cannot believe that her friends let her go with this guy. I mean, he looks like, you know, he just looks very foreign. He's very, um, he looks a little like, I mean, people used to say he looked like Saddam Hussein, which is... (laughs) Not the best, but I'm just trying to give you an image. Okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. It's but good, even good. darker. He's got the mustache. You know, and he didn't have the mustache, but okay. but you know, but and and also when we were kids and we would go, you know, when we were young and we would go to Italy for the summer sometimes. They would, like, hold us in customs for, like, two hours because of my father. Well, I should say, too, like, Saddam Hussein's not a, I mean, he was a, he was a bad guy, but he wasn't a bad-looking guy. He wasn't horrible-looking. <laughs> yeah, my, no, my dad was very, you know, like, swarthy, you know, handsome. And I should say, too, like, this is totally impolitic, but my wife, uh, my wife and I were sitting down, like, watching the news or some documentary one time, and, like, Osama bin Laden, there's, like, this footage, and she's like, he's kind of hot. <laughs> Got in this big conversation. Yeah. Like he's kind of, he was yeah. kind of, I, mean, I can see, he was kind of an attractive man, you know, he's tall. Guy. Yeah, I mean, nice features. Right. Yeah, I mean, so he doesn't, you know, people don't think he's Italian. They often think he's Middle Eastern or, and, and, and growing up on Long Island during a Desert Storm, right? Was that Desert Storm? Was that the first one? Yeah, that was like the Like people 90s. would come into the, people would come into the card shop that he ran because he can never have another job. He, like, he had to have a job where he was, he ran the business because, his English wasn't that great. You know, I don't know if he would have been able to get like an actual non-manual labor, like non, you know, so they bought this card shop business, but people will come to the store and ask him if he was Iraqi. And he's like, I Italian, you know, anyway. Yeah. 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 Everybody likes the, so, everybody likes the Italians. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Very safe. The Italians. So, okay. And so they met at this dance. My mother was this pale Irish pe- American woman. And that was it. It was like, it was just love. They didn't speak each other's language. And, um, that's interesting. You know, my mom didn't realize at first. She was like, I am Patricia. And he was like, I am Salvatore. You know, (laughs) and then my mom drove him home that night and he couldn't even tell her how to get back to his family's house. Like, they had to stop at a gas station so he could call. His aunt, so clearly already he was a homebody with a bad sense of direction. But um, then what happened was they went back to Italy because he had to go back to Italy. And for seven years, my mother told her parents lies that she was living alone in Italy where she was the, um, she had been a school teacher in, in the States. 
So she became the principal of an American school in Torino. And they lived together for seven years. And my mom lied to her because they never, her parents would never have accepted that. And um, What, living in sin? Yeah, living in sin and also living with this foreign man who had no education. And my father was a uh, security guard for Fiat. So um, then what happened was they came back to the States, got married, and you should see the pictures. It's like half of the wedding are like these fair, like very pale Irish Americans, and the other half are like these dark-skinned Southern Italians with like the big 70s sunglasses, very um, <laughs> Godfather 2. That's awesome. And... Electric, and then they went back like, to like Godfather Two, Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> kind of combination or something. <laughs> and then they went back to uh, Italy, and then came back only so that I could be born. And then went back to Italy, and I lived there until I was two. And then they came back to America. Oh, that's cool. Which my father says is the biggest regret of his life, but I don't know if that's true. He wishes he was back in Italy. I don't know. I think he would be maybe sort of miserable everywhere. You know, I don't know. I think that he had such a, um, I think he had this, you know, I, when I read The Great Gatsby in um, junior high, I remember thinking, like, when I finished it, I was like, this book is about my father, even though it was like, he wasn't like any of the characters in the book at all. But it was just so clearly like, you know, that he had been so consumed with this idea of the American dream. And I think my mother, maybe to get him to come back to the States, was very much like, I don't know, maybe she was, maybe she's too good of a storyteller. And she told him a story that was too, you know, beautiful. Um, and that's and like, even though they have this... That's like his yeah, green, that's like his green light, like that's his green, blinking green light or whatever, is the idealized version that she planted in his head or something. Definitely, definitely. Whenever they get in an argument or something, he's like, your mother, she told me, you know. And I'm like, Dad, you have every, you know. I mean, they are now in their older age. You know, it's very, it's hard. And they, they live incredibly frugally, like. But wait, didn't, your, didn't, to, your, didn't your mother's uh, dad make a bunch of money building the Twin Towers or no? Yeah, well, that's another problem with the American dream is that he then spent it all in one generation. So it's a very like, I mean, I really want to write about this someday and I feel like I'm almost there as a, you know, I've grown up almost enough and I have, I have almost enough sort of distance from like being my parents' child, you know, like now because they're so much older, you know, I'm more of the parent to them now you know, um, those roles have switched. Sure. So I feel like, uh, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, maybe after I finish this novel I'm working on now, that the next one will be the American dream story. Your guess. And I'm not sure. If, yeah. I'm not sure if I can do it. I'm not sure if it's going to be fiction or nonfiction. I don't know. We'll see. Just do the memoir. Just tell it. Well, but then again, maybe you want to change stuff. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But like, you clearly want to talk about, you have a lot to talk about. That's it. This is all this really interesting. I know it's such a great story, right? I mean, I feel like I should let it be nonfiction, but I don't know what it's going to feel like. I think I just have to start writing it and see 
where it takes me. Cause yeah. you know that, cause so much of my fiction, like my, like cutting teeth started out incredibly autobiographical. Like that first scene in the playground when Nicole is having this like OCD induced like panic attack, <laughs> that was very much like me just sitting down and writing about my own fears. And then as the book developed it morphed into fiction um so i always i i write from that place that's very initially autobiographical um and then the book sort of just starts to change on its own a little bit it feels like but well, um and you got to give yourself i mean if it is fiction then you got to you get to give yourself permission to tweak things to you know to, to better the story i mean sometimes if you're if you're bound to nonfiction to the facts or whatever, or at least to the facts of your memory, then that can be a little bit right. res- can be a little bit restricting. But it, it seems yeah. it, it seems like a super personal story that you have to tell. Yeah. And also, this last year, you know, my parents' house, um, or was it two years ago? I can't even remember now. Sandy, was that was that last year, two years ago. I think it, was it feels two. like it was yesterday. Um, they live on the very they live on the water on the North shore of Long Island, not realizing when they bought this little house that was so inexpensive, why it was so expensive because every time a hurricane comes, it gets like clobbered. So their house is almost destroyed in Sandy. And to see my father who, I mean, when I first, when we first were driving out there to see the aftermath, I was like, Oh my God, thinking to myself, he's going to have a nervous breakdown. Like a man who who survives a war and all the poverty, but in fact, he was so incredibly resilient, and he loves hard labor so much that I I think he probably dealt with it better than anyone. But I think the emotional strain really aged my parents of trying to get enough money to fix it up. But like that first night that we were out there, the house. The bottom two floors of the house were filled with mud, like from the water that came in through the windows that yeah. smashed the windows. Yeah. And he had gotten the hot dogs out of the submerged refrigerator that was also upside down and was grilling them on the grill outside. <laughs> oh my God. That's tough. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, That's you a man- should be on Survivor. I was going to say, that is a man who is undefeated. Yes. He is incredible. They are just, I mean, there's no, I often feel sorry for my husband because even though my father was flawed, is flawed in many ways as a father, <laughs> my husband will be like fixing something in the house and I'm like, should I call my dad? <laughs> <laughs> he could do it with like a paper clip and a piece of wire. Yeah. You know? your, da- your dad's like grilling hot dogs after Sandy. Like at least I'm not in a cave, like drinking breast milk for two weeks. <laughs> This is great. We got hot dogs. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, do you think those are okay to eat? He's like, it's good. It's good. It's I'm good. Like, okay. Yeah. You're cooking it. It's fine. Wow. Yeah, That's intense. I, yeah, you know, I have a family that in Katrina, one of my cousins lost her house. There was like a boat on top of her house and just, I mean, like the, pic- oh, God. the pictures were insane. But like these weather events, they're the real deal. You know, they, uh, I just read that book about the, um, can't remember is it four days five days at memorial um which is about the hospital during katrina and oh my god i just uh yeah just hell on earth 
It was really dark. Totally. And it was And so, like the it, things that people do when they're in that moment of crisis and the decisions they make. I mean, it was just really. That's some beach um, Anybody who's heading out on a summer vacation, you might want to pick that one up. <laughs> I know. I love dark. <laughs> I, I can only read really dark stuff. And every time people ask me for recommendations, I'm like, are you sure? Because <laughs> I spent a lot of time at night. I was listening to your um your talk with Kelly Braffitt, who's a good friend of mine, and she actually taught for Saka Street years ago. And you guys were talking about insomnia, and I also have really bad insomnia. And I have always, like, even as a child, like, I... So it's not like I even really know what that what it's like to be a good sleeper, so whatever, I'm not missing, you know. But, um... And, um... Oh, I was thinking about... So what I do at night for my insomnia is I, I listen to audiobooks and knit. And I also have a Tumblr about my knitting and audiobook reviewing, which is really dorky. But and um and I listen to these like super dark, like true crime nonfiction books and like historical nonfiction about like the beginning of forensic science and like all this really occasionally my husband will look at my um my phone at like my audible account and he's just like, Oh, <laughs> it can't be healthy. And plus, I'm knitting like rainbow baby blankets well, that's while I a, listen to books about serial killers. Yeah, you see, I'm, I'm thinking like for an anxious person because I this is what I've been doing lately. As I've been taking, and this is obnoxious, but um, to kind of like <laughs> c- combat not being able to sleep well at night, I've been going for like five to seven mile walks at night right before bed. Oh, that's nice. And it and it works. And like I've been sleeping like a lot better. But I've also that's I, really far. Yeah. I will walk and I listen to like, you know, uh, Terry Gross or whatever. I listen to just podcast after podcast and, um, you know, I'm trying, but I have to kind of wear myself out, which seems a little ridiculous, but I just do. And and I need, it helps. Oh my God. Are you kidding? I understand this completely. It's like in my blood. My father like can't sleep unless he's like built a shack out of like garbage. (laughs) That's sort of how I am. There's a strong physical component to my makeup, like where I have to physically use my body otherwise like it's not good you know like and, and my wife it does not like she can like just sort of hang and like you know we're sort of a yin and yang I know. yeah I envy well that's her. good she balances you um i mean i do you know it's funny like everyone keeps asking me <laughs> it's funny how people ask me like since my book since cutting teeth came out it's only been a month and so when i see people at the many readings i go to or you know, everyone's like, how are you handling it all? Because, you know, I run Sackett Street, I, which is like a full-time job plus, and, and the and kids. T- tell everybody what Sackett Street is, just so the people who are uninitiated can... can... So, the Sackett Street Writers Workshop is the workshop that I started in 2002, not thinking I was actually starting a business. I just put it out on Craigslist. Um, what had happened was my first book, the first novel that I wrote while I was at the I Writers Workshop when I was 24, I don't know what I was thinking, um, it went out to editors and was rejected slowly for a year. And oh, it was just terrible. I was going to say, such a fun experience when that happens. <laughs> the year-long the, the year excruciating rejection process. <laughs> and I think because... A, I was not properly medicated for my obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, I had just graduated from Iowa where I was like praised and had this fellowship and had signed with this top agent that I had actually let my guard down for the first time and was like, it's going to happen. 
And so my expectations were so um, crazy. And I think this is also like, you know, I got into Iowa and it was like, my parents were like, why would you want to go to writing school? Like I'd never hung out with writers before. I had no idea what the Iowa Writers Workshop was or what it meant. And then when I got there, I was like, oh my God, these are the most ambitious people I've ever met. They wanted to be a writer since they were like two, you know? And so I think like I basically borrowed their sort of expectations, you know, thinking that was normal that you would get published at 25. So when my book was rejected, it really like, I went through like a serious episode where I just had no confidence in myself. I didn't write for about six years. And I did teach nonstop, and that turned out to be this incredible sort of, I don't usually use this word because I'm not religious, but blessing where I put an ad on Craigslist. I've been adjuncting for, like, no money at a bunch of private universities in New York City, and I started this workshop, and basically eight people, like this motley crew of all different levels, showed up in my brownstone, you know, my kitchen, um, the the apartment we rented from our senile Sicilian landlady. And I was so young and eager and probably also my obsessive compulsive nature helped that I made everyone work so hard on each other's critiques <laughs> that it got this reputation as this workshop for serious writers. Because only people who wanted to work really hard. I just was so young and naive and, you know, I, I worked so hard on everyone's work, you know, writing, like critique it so thoroughly that I had the same expectations. And I think I really threw myself into that, like, as opposed to writing. It's interesting to hear you say that. And it's also, I got to say, because I have experience working with writers at the Nervous Breakdown, who I edit, you know, and, and right. the like. There's a guy that comes to mind. He's one of the best writers at the site. His stuff is always immaculate, and he's OCD. And there, yeah, it, it can it can come in handy to an extent. I mean, I don't want to minimize. Oh it, yeah, but I mean, just like I he, mean, I would. Yeah, his copy just Sorry, comes. His copy just comes in spotless, and he will noodle with the piece for weeks until it's perfect. And, and then you read yeah. it, you read it and you're like, Oh, this is a joy to read. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, that, you know, that I think, I really think that, you know, because what I've learned from the publishing experience, you know, this last couple of years is that you really only have yourself to, to rely on, you know, I mean, your agent, your editor and your publicist, they'll all do as much as they can, but it's really you. Like everything is really on you. And, you know, I think like so many of the books that like people are, you know, that you read and you're like, oh, this could have been really great. You know, it's just because they're just not, it just hasn't been worked enough. Right. And so in these workshops, like, and because like, I was like covering people's pages with like, and not just like what needs to be worked on, but also like what's working and how they're making it work. And so I started to really focus on talking about how everyone was accomplishing certain effects, like through which technical choices. And that became the Sackett Street method. I'm using my quotey fingers because it's kind of silly to think that I have a method. But there are people, I think, who would say there is one. And um, 
And so all those years that I wasn't writing and like really beating myself up for not writing because all my, it seemed like everyone I went to Iowa with was getting published and like big published, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I um, was teaching and teaching and teaching a lot of novel writing workshops and having children. And, but then I still had like no confidence in myself. And then slowly, I started to have confidence because I was watching writers who were many just as talented and much more hardworking than a lot of the people who went to Iowa was, right? Not everybody, but, and they were like accountants and lawyers and stay-at-home moms and just like graphic designers and editorial assistants, and they were writing to write. You know, I mean, we all want to be published, but they were really working hard. And that taught me to have like a different perspective, higher expectations of myself and and lower expectations of the publishing world, you know, like, and um, when my daughter was uh, born, I, you know, went back after going through this terrible, like, um, depression, anxiety when I was pregnant with her, especially in a huge obsessive episode over the swine flu situation. Oh, God. I wrote about for HuffPost parents. Um, I went on Zoloft, which is, was like the most incredible thing ever, and I wrote Cutting Teeth in nine months. Wow. With and, the, was the, with yeah. The Zol- so Zoloft is the key? <laughs> is that what's... Well, for me... It is one of the keys. And I used to joke with my husband that I was going to dedicate the book to Zoloft because probably <laughs> who really honestly deserves it. Zoloft, right. my babysitter, and my husband. I mean, that's really the combo right there in the writer space. Yeah. Um, and, and also Sackett Street doing well enough that I could afford to pay a babysitter more. You know, so I kind of had to wait. I had to wait to grow up. I had to wait so I could learn how to write. You know, like I didn't know how to write until I taught years of workshops. That teaches you. And yeah, I mean, I can't believe I even expected that I would know how to write a novel. Like just, I mean, I really learned how to write and I grew up as a person. Um, and I also had to wait to be able to afford childcare. Yeah. You know, I was doing a lot of that. So in the end, I shouldn't have beaten myself up for all, all that time. Because those 10 years or, you know, that I, between that first book and this and cutting teeth were really necessary, but hindsight, so much hindsight's 2020. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, you know, and, and, and like, I think yeah. you were just about to say that there's a lot of obsession with youth and like that, like everyone and this, and you know what people in publishing are guilty of this because it really is, um, in some ways, easier to get published as a debut, and like publishing loves, yeah. like, publishing loves the twenty-four-year-old uh, kid with a good novel, even you know, or even like yeah. the, the the middling novel that can be like marketed as good, or you know, like yeah. Um, so I think it's very American too. It's a very American. I mean, especially like whenever I think of like L.A. too, you know, oh, like sure, I read yeah. um, like I love reading about the history of L.A. Like I read that amazing book. Um, a bright and guilty place. Did you read that? No, but I want to. It's a non it's a nonfiction book about the history of LA that is so incredible. Okay. I listened to it on audio. No, I have I'm looking at my uh, bookshelf. Uh, um hang on a second. I have a book called 
Land of Smoke and Mirrors, and then I have The Fragmented Metropolis, and, uh, yeah. and then a, a, I, William, one... a William Mulholland bio, that I because I'm definitely interested in learning more about this place. Yeah, I'm so... sure you, this is the only book I've read about LA. I'm sure there's so many other ones. But, a, um, a Bright and Guilty Metropolis? A Bright and Guilty Place. Okay. I think it's a, it's a Raymond Chandler quote. Okay, there you go. And, um, but you know, like, I do enjoy, like, especially, like, reading about, like, the West, you know, because it, it's, it's the newness of America is just so, it's just something that we forget about, you know, and I think that this, it, it's part, it also contributes to this obsession with, like, new, young, fresh, it's almost like a gamble, too, it's like, you know, like, I think publishers love the sort of, like, gamble on, like, what's going to be the next hit and I think it's in some ways it's good because you do want there to be like a little bit of like mystery and surprise and like not have them only be publishing books that they think are going to be solid sellers you know Um, but I do think that writers and artists and you know a lot of any kind of any young people young Americans really put pressure on themselves to like you know like and then we have all those awards like five under 35 and 10 under 40 and and i and for some like prodigies you know that's cool but i'm just like a normal person you know and i also had all that like delay in my childhood and young adulthood because of the obsessing and the like not being you know emotionally stable that, you know, I really feel like it. I feel like 35 is when I hit my, like, I was like, okay, I'm cool now. I'm see, I'm 38. <laughs> I'm still waiting. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I need like to get life some, just gets better. I'm going to get some, know? I'm going to get some Zoloft and see what I can do. We'll see. <laughs> um, but listen, I, uh, I, I've had a lot of fun talking with you. I congratulate you on cutting teeth and uh, all the success that you've had with Sackett street. Um, so if people, I mean, Sackett Street is local to uh, Brooklyn, New York City, correct? Like, people can't do this remotely. It is. I mean, someday we hope to to add online classes. and um, But in, in since 2002, we've had over 2,500 writers pass through. And because they're so serious, you know, they're very motivated and and, and really, you know, invest. In, in their writing career and, like, are working towards, like, living a writing life. They have gone to, like, every MFA program. They're being published by major houses and small presses, and they're just sort of in every branch of, you know, um, the literary world, whether it's literary magazines or literary blogs or they're just um, – I mean, it's really fun to go to uh, – you know, for me to go to literary events and also like AWP because I just, they're just everywhere. And, um, bumping into family members and I, and because I'm the only administrator, which is kind of intense, I interact with all of them because I, I read their applications and then we find together, we find a class that's the right fit. Um, so we have this very high returning rate because we make sure that the classes are like the writers are working at the same level. Um, and so, um, and a lot of those in the beginning, it was just me teaching first one night a week and then two nights a week and then four nights a week. And then I started hiring people, 
Um, and all the classes are in the instructor's homes and they're no bigger than eight people in a class. And, um, it's just like, I real, you know, everyone keeps asking me like, when are you going to get, make it bigger? And I'm like, never. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Cause I want the quality to stay the same. I was going to say bigger doesn't, isn't always better. So yeah, I'm like, it is bigger. <laughs> right. You're, it's big <laughs> enough. I'm t- I'm having a hard enough time keeping track of 2,500 writers. Yeah. Well, uh, congrats on all of it, and congrats on the book. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Okay, there we go. That's Julia Fierro. Go get her novel. It's called Cutting Teeth. It's out there now from St. Martin's Press. You can find Julia online at juliafierro.com. She's on Twitter at Julia Fierro. She's on Facebook, Instagram, Goodreads, Pinterest. You name it. She's everywhere. And uh, you should also check out, if you're in New York City or planning on being in New York City, the Sackett Street Writers Workshop. You can find that online at sacketworkshop.com. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about that app, the free official Other People app, available wherever apps are available. You go get that. It's the best way to listen to this program. And uh, you can sign up for premium, stream every episode. That's fun. Uh, otherwise, episode 300 is coming up. i got to figure that out. I'm running a little behind, uh, you know, on my booking schedule. I don't know why that is. Uh, I think maybe being out of town last week sort of threw me off schedule. So hopefully, uh, you know, I can find somebody uh, to make it special for you. We'll see. If you have any suggestions, uh, or or if you're fancy, if you're a fancy author and you're listening to this podcast and you want to be on my show, by all means, <laughs> make my life easy so I don't have to go groveling at your doorstep. My uh, my uh, email address is letters at otherppl.com. You can also tweet at me. The show's handle is other or is at otherppl. Please remember that Bella Bartok died of leukemia and that Camus once said, quote, no artist tolerates reality. That's it for now. Thanks once more to uh, Julia Fierro. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who supports the show via premium or the TNB book club. Uh, extra thanks to you. I'll be back soon with another human being, another person, another conversation with a writerly creative. I hope you had a good fourth. Did you have a good fourth? Do you feel good about America? I feel weird about America. I feel weird about all countries. I'll be honest with you. I don't want there to be countries. I'm an idealist. I just want there to be earthlings. Does anybody else feel like that? Countries make me nervous. They make things complicated. The fact of the matter is we're all just marooned here on this planet which is a watery ball in infinite blackness. I've said this before. I think we need to get real. Quit waving flags, and uh, let's pay some attention to the crushing reality of this overwhelming existential quagmire. (laughs) 